From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP NP Education Specialist Michelle McKay, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. According to the World Health Organization, there's about 170,000 deaths each year from the meningococcal disease worldwide, with case fatality rates up to 50%, even with treatment. While meningococcal disease can affect all ages, the incidence is highest in children less than a year of age and adolescents ages 16 to 20 years. The progression of invasive meningococcal disease can be very rapid, and most deaths occur within the first 24 to 28 hours after diagnosis, and nearly all invasive meningococcal disease-related deaths occur within the first 30 days. Of course, the most effective way to protect our vulnerable populations from meningococcal disease is through immunizations, and there are currently five meningococcal vaccines licensed and available in the United States. We have three men ACWY vaccines and two men B vaccines. Yet the series uptake and completion among our adolescents and adults remains poor. In this powerful episode, NPs Mary Beth Coslett Petraco and Audrey Stevenson talk with Alicia Stillman and Patty Wukovitz from the Meningitis B Action Project on how this deadly disease has changed their lives forever and what we can do to keep our adolescent and young adult patients safe from this deadly disease. Now let's start this podcast. Hello, my name is Dr. Audrey Stevenson. On behalf of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I welcome you to this important podcast. I am a nurse practitioner with over 40 years of experience of clinical and public health experience and feel like I've had the best of both worlds in working with vaccines. I am the current Director of Family Health Services of the Salt Lake County Health Department. I am also a voting member of the Vaccine Advisory Board for the state of Utah, and I have been a vaccine advocate for over 30 years. I would like to now introduce some of my other co-presenters. Mary? Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Mary Kosla-Petraco. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner, and I worked for 30 years at Suffolk County Department of Health Services in New York, where I ran the immunization and the lead programs. I was a clinician and a a public health nurse. I started the immunization program for Suffolk County many years ago, and I have really devoted my career to working in the field of immunizations for both adults and children. I currently am a clinical assistant professor in the Pediatric Nurse Practitioner Program at Stony Brook University in New York, and I'm also a longtime nurse consultant for the Immunization Action Coalition. So I'm really thrilled to be with all of you today. We have a special treat. I'm really honored to say that we have two wonderful moms here to talk to us also. I'd like to introduce Patty Wukovitz and Alicia Stillman. I'm Patty Wukovitz, Executive Director of the Kimberly Coffee Foundation and co-founder of the Meningitis B Action Project. I'm a registered nurse in New York, and my current role is an oncology research nurse on Long Island, working on breast cancer clinical trials. 
Hi, my name is Alicia Stillman, and I am the director of the Emily Stillman Foundation and the co-founder and co-director of the Meningitis B Action Project. I am an MBA, MPH. I am the CFO of a multi-state law firm, and I'm thrilled to be here today. Well, thank you very much to both of you. So, Audrey, would you introduce the next segment, please? So one of the big areas of vaccine advocacy is talking about the shared decision-making. So shared decision-making is one of the important concepts for both clinicians and families. Shared decision-making is making a patient-centered clinical approach to vaccine advocacy. One of the important concepts of having patient-centered care is to involve the patient in the decision-making about an important vaccine. Mary, what has been your experience with shared decision-making in your clinical practice? I've had a a lot of experience with shared decision-making. Shared decision-making is different from the way we normally speak about vaccines because the outcome could be that we do not vaccinate as opposed to the regularly uh, scheduled vaccines that are on the, the ACIP or the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices schedule. My favorite paradigm to use is called the case model. We start out by really listening to the patient. The the C stands for corroborate. Listen to the parent. Ask them what they've heard. Tell them that you may or may not have heard some of the very same things, but you want to show that you have those same shared concerns with the parent. The A is for advise. And this is where you might tell the parent what the benefits of the vaccine are, any of the research that you may have heard about it, what your personal experiences are. I love to use personal experiences with my patients. All of my family have been vaccinated with everything that they're scheduled for on the the schedules. My family has also experienced vaccine-preventable diseases. My grandmother died in 1955 from cervical cancer. Um, We recently had a family member who had um, HPV tonsillar cancer. My mother had um, polio. I share these stories with others. And quite frankly, being such good friends with with Alicia and Patty, I share the stories about their daughters as well, where they'll be telling you more about that as we go further into the program. So then from there, I go to the S, which is the science. And that's where I will explain to the parent the specifics of what the science is behind the vaccine. Science is really pretty far down in this discussion because parents don't want to hear the science. They want to hear what happened to you? Did you use the vaccine? Did your family member use it? What do you personally think? The other part of that is we as nurses are the most trusted of all the professions. Use that with your patients. We have that trust experience there. So make sure that you use that trust experience with patients when you're speaking with them. They want to know what you think. They want to hear from you. And they very often will base their decisions on what you've said to them. And then the last part of the case model is E for advise and explain. And that's where I present the strong message for to that parent or to the adolescent or to the adult that I really want them to be vaccinated. So the way I would conclude my discussion with them would be, I really believe in this vaccine and I know it's going to protect your child and I want to give your child the same protection that I've had for either my child or my grandchildren or maybe someone else that you could identify with. 
and sum your, your discussion up in that manner. And then following your discussion, make sure that you ask the parent if you've answered all their questions by saying, do you have any more questions? Giving them the buy-in. And that's really important, especially when you are using shared decision-making, where very well the outcome that we may have to accept as clinicians is that the parent chooses not to vaccinate. You know, Mary, I think all of those are really good points. And a couple of other uh, pieces that come to my mind, in addition to your excellent comments, are that it's really important that we always have a presumptive type of an approach with our patients, that part of this shared decision making isn't, do you want to be vaccinated today or not be vaccinated today? I think the important message is we presume that everyone needs to be vaccinated while we have them there. I think it's also very important that we have the entire office on the same page, that everyone in that office from the front desk all the way back to you as the clinician is a vaccine advocate, that they're talking as soon as the person comes in about any vaccines that they need today and using every single encounter with that patient as a vaccine visit. Yes, I agree. I, I, I think though you've, you've hit some very important points. You know, with, with meningitis B vaccine, it's on the schedule, but it's not a mandatory vaccine like measles, mumps and rubella or varicella might be. So in this particular case, the parent does get really more input and more to say about the vaccine. Our job as clinicians is to convince the parent that this is the right thing to do for their child. Again, unfortunately, with shared decision-making, we have to be prepared if the parent refuses. Our job is to try to give them the information they need to make the decision that we want them to make, and that's to accept the vaccine. Shall we move into some case studies and, and have some chatting with, with Alicia and Patty now? I think that's a great idea. Patty and Alicia have very generously offered to allow us to, to do some role playing with them when issues would come up. And remember, Patty and Alicia are parents and they haven't mentioned before to you, but I'm sure they will along in the discussion. But I just want you to know. Patty and Alicia both lost their daughters to meningitis B, and we'll be chatting with them a little bit more to tell their stories. Just keep in mind how important this is for them to have devoted their lives now to helping other families to make good choices about vaccines so other families are not faced with the terrible outcomes that, that both of them have had to face. Patty, I see that your daughter is getting ready for college and that she's had her meningitis vaccine today. But did you know that there is another meningitis vaccine? It's called meningitis B vaccine. I didn't realize that there were two types of meningitis vaccines. Can you tell me the difference between the two? I'm really happy that you've asked me to give you that explanation. The regular vaccine that we give is called MEN-ACW-135. It covers four what we call serotypes of the bacteria that causes meningitis. And because we routinely give that vaccine to all adolescents these days, we haven't really seen any of those serotypes on the college campuses. Meningitis B is another serotype. And right now, it's the most common one on the college campuses. In the past 10 years, meningitis B has been the only cause of bacterial meningitis on the college campuses in the United States. I think this is a really important vaccine, and that's why I think that your daughter should get that vaccine today in addition to the other vaccines that are needed. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask about that vaccine? 
No, I think you've answered and actually explained the difference between the two vaccines. And again, I didn't know that there were two different types. So thank you so much. I want my daughter to be as protected as possible. So let's go ahead and let's get both of those shots today. I'm so happy that you made that decision. Meningitis B is a relatively rare bacterial infection, but if it's your daughter or my daughter, that makes a big difference. Every single child's life is important, and that's why I am so excited that you've decided to give me the permission to protect your daughter today. Thanks very much, Patty. We'll get that vaccine ready for your daughter right now. Audrey, would you like to introduce the next role-playing case with Alicia? Yes, thank you. Alicia, I understand that you have some concerns about giving the MenB vaccine to your child today. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, I do because there are just so many needles and she's received several other vaccines today. So either maybe we should do it another day or maybe this disease is so rare she doesn't need it. You know, I think you bring up some really good points. Unfortunately, the other vaccines that your child is due for today doesn't include that MenB vaccine. So you're receiving the booster dose of the Men ACWY today, but you haven't included the MenB vaccine. Let me tell you a little bit more about the MenB vaccine. Do you have any concerns about the vaccine itself or just we're unaware that there is an additional vaccine that we're recommending? Well, is it safe? This vaccine is very safe and it's actually been very protective in protecting individuals that are at the highest risk of contracting meningococcal B, meningitis. So while your daughter's already been protected against other strains, she is currently unprotected against this other strain that uh, she's more likely to encounter as a young adult. Are there side effects? The side effects that we know about with the MenB vaccine, again, a very safe vaccine, are just some localized types of irritation at the injection site and so forth, just similar to other vaccines. Here is a vaccine information sheet. I would like to go through this with you so that you have all of your questions answered about that. And will, will this vaccine be covered by my insurance? This is one of those uh, vaccines that um, is covered by insurance and by the Vaccine for Children program. Well, thank you so much. I also want my daughter to be as protected as possible, so I would like to go ahead and give her this vaccine today. I think that's a, an excellent decision. I know that I've vaccinated my own children with this vaccine, and I think it's really important especially for your child's future, that we make sure that we give her as much protection as is possible. Thank you. Have I answered all of your questions? Yes, you have. Very well, thank you. And okay. I didn't know about this, and I'm certainly going to tell all of my friends and, and my daughter's friends' parents. That's fantastic. Thanks again. That was really great. We are so fortunate to have Patty and Alicia here. I think it might be really important to ask them what they want us as providers to know about the vaccine and the risks and what should also we be telling parents when we're having encounters with them. Patty, do you want to go first? Yes. Yeah, so I just want to really emphasize the fact that meningitis B is responsible for 100% of our college outbreaks on our college campuses over the last 10 years. That's a very startling and very important fact. 
Also, I want your patients to know that this is not just a college disease. As you'll hear me tell my daughter Kimberly's story shortly, my daughter was a healthy high school senior living at home with me, so she was not living in a dormitory situation. So it's very important that parents understand the severity of this disease and that they understand who is at risk, what the risks are, and how the disease is transmitted. That's so true, Patty. And I also think that it's really important for parents to know that a disease like meningococcal meningitis doesn't happen to people who have pre-existing conditions or are sick and it goes into something else. My daughter, as you'll hear me tell the story, was completely healthy. And one day she was fine and the next she was not. So it's quite often where a parent would say, my child is so healthy, they don't need an additional vaccine, but it could happen to anybody. Absolutely, Alicia. It can happen to anybody. It happened to us. Well, we're really so grateful to both of you for sharing those important stories with us. Do either of you have any thoughts about some strategies that we as healthcare providers could use to increase the rates of a meningitis B vaccine among adolescents? This is Patty. I encourage you to share our daughters' stories because our daughters were just like anybody else. And putting their face, putting their story to this very ugly disease is very, very important. And it seems to hit home more than telling a patient about statistics. But when it's your child, they're not a statistic. And the devastation that can be caused by a vaccine-preventable disease is just indescribable. I agree. I also think one concern that I have is that there are still providers out there that don't understand that it's their responsibility to talk about the MenB vaccine. It is, and it's so important because in 2012 and 13, when Patty and I lost our girls, that vaccine was not yet licensed in the United States. And it's so important now that a parent understands what the complete and most comprehensive protection looks like by administering the second vaccine. And it's so important for the provider to educate that parent and their patient. On the flip side of that, now, we didn't have the MenB vaccine available for our daughters. Very recently, a mom had reached out to both of us and shared a terrible story with us that her son was away at school, away at college, and he unfortunately contracted meningitis B. And after the dust settled and the mom contacted the pediatrician, and she said, well, why didn't you tell me that there was a meningitis B vaccine? I just found out that there's a vaccine that could have prevented my son's death. And his response to the mom was, well, I do stock the vaccine in my office. However, I only bring up the meningitis B vaccine if the parent or the patient asks for it. So we just lost that child. So unnecessary and so devastating. So remember you know, remember that story that I just told and then remember the stories of our daughters. And I hope that this will help you to promote the fact that this vaccine is so incredibly important. 
Patty, this would probably be a good time also to make sure that anyone who's listening knows about the resources from the Meningitis B Action Project, because so many providers are using our resources in their offices as a way to explain the disease and the difference between the two vaccines and um you know, I would encourage anybody to go to the website to be able to access our resources. Right, right. Great point. Because we've worked very hard through the Meningitis B Action Project to make the message very clear that there are two separate meningococcal meningitis vaccines, because let's face it, it's a difficult conversation to have that, hey, there's two different vaccines here, because most of the time the parent will say, oh, I already know about the meningitis vaccine. And then you need to explain to them further that, no, no, there is another vaccine, and it's called the meningitis B vaccine, and a protection for meningitis B is not included in the men-ACWI vaccine that your child received at 11 with the booster dose at 16. So it's very important that the message is given very clearly, and our resources show that, and we worked very hard to make that clear. Yes, utilize our resources on our website, meningitisbeactionproject.org, and um, you know, join us. Please you know, reach out to us if we can help you in any way. I think what both of you have said is just so powerful, and it really brings the message home to nurse practitioners. And uh, the website that Patty and Alicia have mentioned is part of the references and the resources that we've included for you. And the bottom line to this entire discussion is every single child's life matters. When I used to visit private providers' offices and ask them if they gave meningitis B, they used to t look at me and say, ah, it's not that important. It's not that common. Never seen it. And then I would turn around and say to them, and what are you going to say to a parent if their child dies because you didn't bring it up, and then I got the dead silence, which is exactly the same thing that Patty just described to you. So I think we as nurse practitioners can really get out there and get that message out, um, not just to our, our nurse practitioner colleagues, but to all of our colleagues about the importance of this vaccine. You know, Mary, uh yeah, Mary, I absolutely agree with that. And I think the other point is that that was made so eloquently by these two women is that a lot of the clinicians are not promoting this vaccine because it's not a required vaccine for school entry or for any other circumstance. It's one of those that is offered during that shared decision making. And so as a result of that, many families don't even know about this important vaccine. And so I think that as clinicians, as nurse practitioners and vaccinators, it's important that we tell them about this important vaccine that is really needed by all of our patients that are coming in that are eligible for this vaccine. And a lot of times what's happened is that the patient has come in for a non-well visit or some other encounter, and we need to be offering this vaccine whenever we encounter this individual because we know that as adolescents get older that they come in for fewer visits and so it's more likely that you're going to see those patients that would be eligible for the vaccine at an urgent care visit or as part of a physical or some other encounter um, that you might not have thought about vaccines um, um, as part of. So I think it's really important that that we be 
always thinking about what vaccines the individual needs, but in particular, this vaccine, because the rates of the vaccine um, coverage for the men B vaccine is really low. And we really need to do a much better job of promoting the vaccine and getting everyone in the community uh, protected. Alicia, I think this is a great place to, for you and Patty to talk about that study that you did to determine why meningitis B is not being offered in these offices. This was really a groundbreaking study, in my opinion. Can you both share a little bit of the information about what you did and why you did it and what your results were? Sure. Actually, I'm, I would just like to go back to Audrey's point. And, and before we talk about the study, to, to make one other point, and that would be how helpful it would be if specialists and family medicine groups um, carried the vaccinations and talked about vaccinations as well, because this is at an age where we have adolescents and young adults that are transitioning away from a pediatric practice into a family medicine practice or sometimes has not made the, tr the transition but is only going for specialized care visits to a specialist. And so their only opportunity to learn about a vaccine may be a little bit through an alternative source. And it would be very helpful if we could have participation from those groups as well. Now back to our study. Patty, do you want to start with that? <laughs> Great point, Alicia. What I what I yeah, do is. what I do want to mention, and this does tie into our study, is that I want to try to clear up a common misconception. Parents, students, and many healthcare providers are under the false impression that the meningitis vaccine and the meningitis B vaccine are required when you go to college. Not so. Okay, most colleges do require the men-ACWI vaccine. However, with that requirement, you are not protected against meningitis B, and that is the separate vaccine. So it depends on your state, it depends on your school, it depends if it's private or public. So there, you know, that misconception is out there. And so many parents will say, oh yeah, my child got that when they went to college. No. It's very, very important that parents, students, and healthcare providers understand the college requirements for meningococcal meningitis vaccination. Many parents think that when their child goes off to school, that they are required to receive the meningitis vaccine. That vaccine is required at many colleges, and that's the men-ACWI vaccine. That vaccine does not protect against meningitis B, and as we mentioned earlier, meningitis B is responsible for 100% of our college outbreaks. So it's super important that we as healthcare providers understand our state's college requirements, um, and other states' college requirements so that we can give our patients the correct information because they think that when they get that one vaccine that they're protected against meningococcal B. And we know through the Meningitis B Action Project that only 42 colleges in our United States are requiring the meningitis B vaccine. Patty, you might also want to mention that most of those 42 colleges are colleges that had a meningitis B outbreak on their campuses. They did. So it's they, kind of, I'm proud of them for doing it now, but wouldn't that have been wonderful if they had all uh, 
mandated meningitis B before that happened? Of course, because of course, this is all about prevention. And um, unfortunately, there are some colleges that have had the outbreaks that did not go on to, to require the vaccine, which is just unbelievable. You know, it gives such a mixed message to parents and students. You know, they say to the students, you know, come here. They tell the parents, we will keep your young adults and, and you know, safe, your students safe. But yet they are giving um, incomplete information. We are seeing vaccination schedules, you know, th- that they need to submit that requires a meningitis shot and doesn't even differentiate between a men ACWI and a men B vaccine. And I think that's irresponsible. And even if a parent were to know, this is giving them the false conclusion that that the men B vaccine is less important than a men ACWI, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Great point, Alicia. We know that well. Can you just talk a little bit more about the study results, you know, what, what providers were saying in those results? I think that's really, really mind-boggling to hear the information that that study brought up regarding what providers thought about this vaccine. The results of our Meningitis B Action Project study, which we conducted among physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, medical assistants, um, and others, the results showed two really important things that healthcare providers in general we're not having the conversation and not endorsing the men B vaccine because there was not a college requirement, that patient's school. And again, with the parents, the same thing. We also found out that parents weren't seeking the men B vaccine or didn't feel its importance because their child's school did not require it. And the other point, which, you know, is mind boggling, is that the providers really didn't fully understand what the ACIP's recommendation was, and that it truly is their responsibility to bring up the meningitis B vaccine and explain its importance in order to engage in a shared clinical decision. That's such an important point, Alicia. Shared clinical decision-making does not mean that you don't discuss the vaccine. It means you must bring it up and you must discuss it. So I'm really glad that this study pointed that out. So I think we have a long way to go on educating providers about the importance of this. And I really believe that nurse practitioners can take the lead on this in educating each other, as well as educating other providers about the importance of meningitis B vaccine. I totally, totally agree. And, you know, the bottom line is that a parent cannot act upon something they don't know about. So it's the responsibility of the healthcare provider to have that conversation and give them the option and have that, you know, shared decision making. What a powerful statement, Patty. A parent cannot bring up something they do not know about. I think we should all burn that into our memories. And every single time we see an adolescent, think about Patty's very powerful words. I mean, what parent, when faced with a decision, Mrs. Jones, do you want to protect your child today from meningococcal meningitis at an 80% rate? 
or at a 100% rate? What parent is going to say, oh, no, thank you. 80% protection is just fine for my child. Right. So if you're only if you're only protecting against four of the five zero groups, you're protecting them 80 percent. And that is exactly how much our daughters were protected. It wasn't enough, but we did not have that vaccine to prevent meningitis B in our daughters. But parents do today. So true. So true. Well, both of you have told us such a very, very powerful story. I personally cannot thank you enough for taking the time to work on this project with us at the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I really think that your input has made this program so much more powerful and much more meaningful to our members and also to the the greater community at large. Do you ladies have anything else that you would like to share with us that you think it's important for people to know about meningitis B? I'd like to share my daughter Kimberly's story of meningitis B. Please do that. So my daughter Kimberly was this adorable little girl. She was funny. She was silly. She was the life of the party. Everyone loved this kid. She was the girl next door. She was vibrant and she was just so full of life. She loved to sing. She'd grab a mic. Anytime there, if there wasn't a mic, she'd grab a, you know, a broomstick, anything, her hairbrush. She just loved to perform. She was a great dancer. She, you know, she took tap and ballet from when she was three years old. And she just grew up into a beautiful young woman. And I was so proud of her. And she wanted to follow in my footsteps as a nurse. And at 17 years old, she knew that she wanted to be a pediatric nurse. And she wanted to save children's lives. So she was accepted into a nursing program at a local college on Long Island in New York, and she was really looking forward to beginning her nursing education. She was also looking forward to prom and high school graduation because she was in her last week of high school when she became sick with meningococcal serogroup B. She was, you know, she had the beautiful prom dress hanging on her closet door. I mean, she was set. She was ready to, you know, go into the next chapter of her life. But one afternoon, she came home from school and she said, Mom, I have body aches and I have a fever of 101, but I took some Motrin and I was at work. She had texted me. She said, I'm feeling pretty good now, but please come home soon. So as soon as I got home, I tell you, this kid, she was perfectly fine. Skipping around the house as she normally would. She was perfectly fine all the way up until we went to bed that night. She insisted that I call the pediatrician that afternoon, which I did. And he said, it sounds like, you know, with the body aches and a temp of 101, that perhaps she has the flu. It sounds like flu-like symptoms. Give me a call in the morning if she um, gets any worse. So when we woke up the next morning, we had a completely different situation. She was so, so sick. And she says, Mommy, there is something really, really wrong with me. Everything hurts me from my eyelashes down to my toes. I don't know what this is. This is just... I am so sick. Let's go to the emergency room. Like she was like begging me to take her to the emergency room. She didn't have to beg me because I saw three tiny petechiae on one of her ankles. She actually said to me, mommy, I feel like my ankles are bleeding. I looked at the ankle and there was three tiny petechiae. And I saw within minutes that that turned into purpura. And then it just, this whole rash went right up her body, right in front of my eyes. So I rushed her to the ER. I had no idea what she had. I just knew she was really sick. And I rushed her in and um, they knew what she had. They actually um, 
did blood cultures, started IV antibiotics, and put her into an isolation room. And then all the doctors came in and they were talking to Kim and I together. And, you know, where were you? Who were you with? What were you doing? All those types of questions. And she was able to answer them. However, she was very uncomfortable because her back was hurting her tremendously. And we looked at her back and we saw the rash continue breaking out in her rash right before our eyes. We just saw the purplish rash. So they gave her some morphine to make her comfortable. And they, you know, kept asking her some questions. The best that she answered the best that she could. One of the doctors pulled me aside outside of the room and she said, we believe that your daughter has bacterial meningitis and that the bacteria has actually infected her blood. And I told the doctor that my daughter can't possibly have bacterial meningitis because I made sure she had received the meningitis vaccine at 11 years old and she got the booster dose just recently when she was 16. And that's when the doctor explained to me that that meningitis vaccine only protects against four of the five serogroups of meningococcal meningitis. I had never heard of meningitis B. I had never heard of serogroup B. So I was completely blindsided, completely shocked. And at that point, I mean, I remember exactly where I was standing in the ER. It was just such a pivotal moment for me in my life because everything changed from there. I just remember it so, so clearly. Um, they took Kimberly up to the pediatric intensive care unit. Remember, she was only 17. She was six weeks away from turning 18. She was septic. She was in multi-organ failure and in septic shock. On the second day, she went to cardiac arrest when they started dialysis, and she was resuscitated and put on a ventilator. That was the last time I had spoken with my daughter. Her limbs were black because she was losing oxygen to her extremities, and they told me that should she survive, she will most likely be a quadruple amputee. As a few more days went on, and she did have brain activity, so we had hope that she was going to pull through this knowing that she would most likely be a quadruple amputee, but she had brain activity and we thought she was going to do okay. But in a few more days later, it turned out she had impending brain herniation and they told me to prepare for the worst. So I had to get my son home from uh, army boot camp. He was um, in basic training, so we got him home. And of course, I was in touch with him every single day throughout this nine-day hospitalization. And we brought him home and we were all together when we took Kim off life support. And um, I buried my daughter Kim in the prom dress she didn't get to wear. The dress that was hanging on her closet door. And I buried her two days before her high school graduation. And it's a hard story to tell. I know it's a hard story to hear, but it's so important that you hear this story because I want you to repeat it. Patty, thank you so much for sharing that. It's hard for me to listen to when I've heard your story so many times, and it's my honor to share that story with people when I speak. Alicia, I can you tell us a little bit about your daughter, too, please? Oh, I would love to tell you about my daughter. I, I, it's what I do. It's now how I live my life by talking about my daughter. This should never have happened to her, and with my work and Patty's work, this shouldn't happen to any other child. My Emily was my middle daughter. She was 
funny and happy. And when Emily smiled, Emily smiled um, not just with her mouth where her lips would turn up a little bit like a smile. Emily smiled with her eyes. Her whole face lit up when she smiled. And people wanted to be around her. She was vivacious. And I love when I tell my story with Patty because, you know, where Kimberly wanted to be a pediatric nurse, she had all these wonderful goals. My Emily wanted to be a comedian. So I always laugh and I tell the story with Patty and I say, yep, your daughter would have been saving lives and mine would have been a waitress while she was waiting for her big hit. But the truth of the matter is Emily was very, very talented. She was very funny. Her dream was to be on Saturday Night Live. She was a double major at a small liberal arts college here in Michigan called Kalamazoo College. And her double major was theater and psychology. The psychology was an afterthought because my husband and I said, you better have a plan B for backup. But like I said, the truth of the matter is she was quite talented. She was very funny and she did um, voices, voiceovers, and she was just, people would just sit around and laugh. And one night, Emily called me and she said, you know, I have a headache tonight. And it was actually January 31st that she called me of 2013. And I thought maybe she was coming down with the flu. She said, I don't think so. She says, you know, I've been a little achy all day and my head hurts. I think that it's how I feel when I'm overtired. And last night I was up all night because I had two big tests today. But don't worry, mommy. She said, I did really good on these two tests. And I said, oh, that's fabulous. Why don't you take Motrin and we'll see how you feel in the morning. That conversation has, has come back and haunted me every night for the last eight years. I, I replay it in my head, but in, in the, my dreams, I don't say take Motrin. I say I'll be right up. And I know that that would, wouldn't have been reasonable. Chances are, even if I walked into the hospital with my 19-year-old daughter and said she has a headache, they would have sent me home. So I know that I wouldn't have changed the outcome, but in my dream, I could. But the truth of, of what happened is I sent her to bed and she woke up a few hours later and she said to her roommates, my head really hurts and it hurts different than a regular headache. Maybe I should go to the hospital. And they took her. They took her to the hospital. They did not call an ambulance. She walked in. She walked in with her backpack, with a textbook, her phone, her iPad, her computer. She wasn't going to die. She was going to get something for her headache. And because she presented simply with a headache, they treated her for a migraine at first. But as the evening went on, as the late night came into early morning, she became more confused and even a little combative, which is symptomatic for a, a meningitis infection. And then they began to suspect maybe something else would have been going on. And I was not called because Emily was 19. I wasn't called until the next morning. And they almost didn't answer my phone because they called on our house phone and they said, 
your daughter has been was admitted during the night with bacterial meningitis and you need to get here right away. And I, I, I listened to that and I thought, and then I said out loud, my daughter can't have bacterial meningitis. She can't have bacterial meningitis because my daughter was vaccinated for bacterial meningitis. And they said, you know, why don't you get here? Because I know you're two and a half hours away. So get en route and we'll discuss it further when you get here. My husband was out of town on business. My older daughter was out of the country uh, studying abroad. My son, I had a son who was in high school at the time, but I got into an automatic role and I got en route. But while en route, I called her pediatrician and I told them about the call and I told them I was on my way to the hospital. And I said, please confirm that I'm right. Confirm that what I remember is correct. My daughter did have the meningitis shot, right? And they said, yes, Mrs. Stillman, your daughter had the meningitis shot. So I was relieved and I didn't realize what I was going to find when I got to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, they were waiting for me and they started to rub my arm and they said, do you want us to call clergy? And at that point, I, I, I called my husband and I said, this is really bad because in, on TV, when they say, do you want us to call clergy? It means the person might die. And that was the first time it really hit me how sick that my daughter was. By the time I got there and I was able to see my daughter, I had to dress up in all this protective garb. I, I even had hair covering and glasses covering and shoe coverings. And my daughter was being prepared for a craniotomy. She was being prepared to open up her cranium because if she were going to survive, they said the degree of her brain swelling was so severe that they wanted to, to decrease the amount of brain damage that she would have. My daughter never woke up from the surgery. I never saw her eyes open. She had beautiful green eyes. I never saw them open again. I never got to hear, I love you, mommy. I never got to feel her arms around my neck. She never woke up. She most likely, um, from the time that she lost consciousness, most likely that is when she really was brain dead, although she wasn't diagnosed to being brain dead until the next day. When uh, by that time, my husband had arrived at the hospital and we had started to make arrangements for my other kids to get back. And they told us our daughter was brain dead. I remember I remember hearing loud noise and I, I know, um, I remember screams and my husband now tells me those screams were mine, which I, I can't even imagine that I was so loud. But I, I remember saying goodbye to my daughter. We, we said goodbye to her as she was being prepared. We, we made the decision for her to be 
um, a, a hero and she was able to donate her organs to keep other people alive. It, with Emily, the bacterial infection stayed in her spinal column and in her brain. It never went into her blood. So she was able to, to be a hero and donate her organs. She had tubes coming out of every single part of her body. But I said to her, you go, you go and be at peace. And I promise you, I will be your voice. And somehow I'm going to figure this out. I had never heard of men be. I had never heard the word meningococcal. I couldn't even say it, let alone spell it at that point. And I said, you go and I'm going to figure this out and I am going to make sure that this does not happen to other people. And that's what I do. And what people don't understand is it isn't just when a kid dies, when a child dies, it isn't just a death. It's like the death of that whole family. It's the death of everything you knew about as a family because your family isn't the same. I mean, my other two kids still have issues. And, you know, Patty and I are lucky that we still have partners that support what we do, but someone losing a child don't. And it's it's the death of every new thing you will not experience with that child over and over and over again. It's it's the death of everything of every everything you dreamed about with that child that you should have experienced with that child. Well, I cannot thank you enough for sharing those those very powerful thoughts and words, Alicia and Patty, my deepest sympathies on the loss of both of your girls, but you both have truly become their voices and are using your voices with theirs to educate all of us. And in, in turn, we will be educating others about this absolutely devastating disease and what we as nurse practitioners can do to stop it. You know, I think this has been an incredible discussion and we've reviewed why we need to discuss the risks of meningitis B and the benefits of the vaccine and which children and adolescents are most at risk. We've talked about some of those risk factors, such as sharing the water bottles and sharing bubble gum. I caught two kids in a mall once. They were sharing their chewing gum. I almost had a heart attack, but this public health nurse, of course, stopped and said, girls, that's not a good thing to do. Uh, but it could have put them at risk for meningitis B. Most powerfully, we've listened to two moms who've lived through this disease and its consequences. We talked about why so many providers don't even bring up the administration of meningitis B. And thank you so much to Patty and Alicia for their study and the results that are so powerful. We looked at two scenarios using paradigms to discuss vaccines with parents. We really hope this information has been helpful to everybody who's been listening and that the discussion of meningitis B vaccine will become routine for every single one who's listening and every single person that you talk to. Just like Alicia and Patty, we need to be ambassadors for this vaccine. Parents need the evidence-based information to make those right choices for children. And we nurse practitioners are here to provide that information and to help parents make those choices. Audrey, would you like to add anything to that? 
I think that you've summarized it in an excellent way, Mary, and really appreciate those powerful and impactful sharing that we got from Alicia and Patty. I agree with Mary that it's really important that the most trusted individuals that impact individuals' decision to vaccinate is going to be the, the clinician. And we already know that nurses are the most trusted profession. And so as nurse practitioners, we have a fantastic opportunity to make sure that we're informing patients and just because the MenB vaccine is shared decision-making doesn't make it any less important than all of the other required vaccines. I think you've heard from Alicia and Patty's experiences that it's really critical that we make sure that parents and patients are informed about this important vaccine and that we use every encounter with our patients to be able to ensure that they're adequately protected against MenB. In addition, I think it's really important that as was mentioned, that other providers, so if you are a nurse practitioner in a specialty practice, make sure that you're still having those conversations with your patients and referring individuals where they can get that MenB vaccine if you don't provide it within your office. Again, very, very important that we use every opportunity, every education opportunity that we have with our patients to ensure that they're adequately protected. We thank everyone for their participation today and really encourage you to follow up with the resources and the other materials that are associated with this podcast. I want to personally thank Audrey, Mary, Patty, and Alicia for joining us on MP Pulse and sharing all your personal stories and experiences on this extremely important topic. This was very emotional and a powerful episode. Your passion and dedication really came through. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode as valuable as I did and can apply some of what was discussed in your practice. If you want to learn more about serogroup B meningococcal disease and the MenB vaccine while earning continuing education credit, visit the AANPCE Center at aanp.org slash center. And check out the recently launched activity, Meningococcal Vaccine, Prevention of Serogroup B Meningococcal Disease in Adolescents and Young Adults. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. (laughs) 